grow up. This is how Paul described what was happening spiritually in the Corinthian church. Though they should have been maturing in Christ, they were still holding on to their old life of flesh like infants. Though they should have learned how to walk like people indwelled with the Spirit, they were still living as mere humans. The Corinthians couldn't quite grasp that we are all merely servants, and servants are expendable. We come into this world with nothing, and we will leave it with nothing. Therefore, the only thing that truly matters is building a life and ministry centered on Jesus. And as we turn today to chapter 4, Paul is going to close out his argument that he began in chapter 1. As a loving father, Paul sees it as his duty to call out the errors of the Corinthians and exhort them with the truth. It's time for them to put away their immaturity, to quit thinking the way the world thinks. It's time for them to decide if they will heed the warnings of Paul or continue to walk in foolishness. Good morning. Um, I'm Ryan, if I've not met you before, and I, uh, I have the privilege of working in our adult ministries here at Sunnybrook, and I have the privilege of, of preaching to you this morning, of working through the text of 1 Corinthians 4. So um, if you want to grab your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, and flip and scroll and click whatever it takes to get there, go to 1 Corinthians 4. This is the end of a long argument that opens up this somewhat difficult letter. This argument actually begins way back in chapter 1, verse 10, and it comes all the way through to chapter 4. And then in, in a few weeks when we deal with 5, we will we'll begin a new section of the book. But this is the end of, of Paul's opening to the letter. And uh, I'm sure you've noticed that over the last few weeks, there have been some recurring themes. If you've seen that, uh, if you've noticed that, that's great, because that means you're paying attention. Paul is going on and on about some of the same ideas. And really, there's, that's because there's certain issues from chapters 1 through 4 that the, the, these ideas, they shape everything for Paul. They shape everything that he's going to argue for, from, that he's going to argue from. And, and he just, the, the Corinthian church is just not on the same wavelength as Paul when it comes to these foundational issues. We notice pretty quickly that certain things, certain ideas matter more than others. Imagine this conversation. Um, I think bananas are yellow. Um, actually, I've seen green bananas, so they're not yellow. Well, okay, but whenever I say banana, people automatically think yellow. I know, but they're not just yellow. You're being a little imprecise. They're also green. And then because I bake banana nut bread, I also like brown bananas. And here it's like, what? Well, they're yellow. And actually, the longer I think about it, I think they might actually be white. Um, in the end, we're all kind of right. I believe 100% that... Without a doubt in my mind, the evidence supports the idea that in the 60s, the United States landed on the moon. We put human beings on the moon. Uh, I think it was all a hoax. Okay, why do you think it was a hoax? Well, let me count the reasons. First, we need to go to YouTube to do some research. Okay, okay. I believe we landed on the moon. I believe that it's way too many people to be involved to keep such a secret like that, an actual secret. Therefore, the natural conclusion is that we've landed on the moon. 
And the truth is, in both of those situations, there is, a, there is a right and a wrong answer. There's a right answer and a wrong answer. Bananas are either yellow or they're not, or they're in some sense yellow, or they're not. Now look at all the options we have here. Either they're yellow, and I believe that they're yellow, or they're yellow and I refuse to believe that they're yellow, which is convenient because there's no bananas in the room, right? So I can believe that for a little while. Or they're not yellow in any sense, and I believe they are, and so I'm kind of confused. Or they're not yellow in any sense, and I refuse to believe that they are because I'm in the know. But really, there's four big options there, and none of them matter. None of them matter at all. Whether or not a banana is kind of yellow, or in some sense yellow, and I believe it or don't believe it, or if it's not, and I believe it and don't believe it, my life looks exactly the same. It is an inconsequential issue. It means nothing. Justin and I can totally disagree on the nature of bananas, and the rest of our day looks exactly the same. It changes nothing. The rest of our week will look the same. The rest of 2018 will look the same, and we will go into 2019 believing totally different things about bananas and everything else is exactly as it was. It is an inconsequential question. Um, I believe that whenever you put on a toilet paper roll, it should fold over. I believe when you put it on, it should come under. And it's like, well, are you a fan of anarchy? Because that's not how it goes. Okay, well, I have the freedom to choose. There's not a real right or wrong answer. It's more of a preference. Okay, um, I believe it is totally appropriate to put pineapples on a pizza. I think that that's ridiculous. That's such an affront to real good pizza. Oh, so you want to get rid of an entire pizza dedicated to the state of Hawaii? No, I just don't really think that that's how it works. I don't think pineapple fits on a pizza. I don't think you find that in Italy where the pizza was, was invented. Who knows if it's actually invented there. I believe that green Skittles should taste like lime. I believe they should taste like sour apple. Okay. Um, in each of these questions, though, it's more of an opinion, and it still doesn't matter. It might change how you live because your preferences will guide the way that you do certain things, but it is an irrelevant question, altogether irrelevant. Um, I believe that as an American, I have the, the right to a freedom of speech, that I can say what I can express myself, even, and that's, that right is protected, even if it offends others. I believe that you have a freedom of speech insofar as that speech does not do damage to the common good. And so whenever you offend, you're destroying the common good. So that speech isn't protected, but all the other speech is protected. I don't believe you understand the word freedom. Um, I don't believe you understand the difference between the right to do something and the consequences of doing it. So inside, even the, the free speech debate, right, there is, there's, there's room to disagree. But in the end, no matter what you think, you and I all go to bed tonight as Americans, except for Jim and Andrea. We all go to bed tonight as <laughs> Americans. Our, our ability to be on the same wavelength with that particular right, it, it doesn't define in or out of, of citizenship. I believe that roughly 2,000 years ago, God became incarnate in a man named Jesus of Nazareth and that the Romans crucified him on the cross and that he went into the ground for roughly three days and then he rose to, um, back to life from the dead and he would never again die and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Um, I don't believe that. Now we have found a question where the differences really, really matter. And 
I think that, you know, Stephen really pointed it out whenever he drew our attention to 1 Corinthians 15. There's just, there are some irrefutable facts that undergird everything Paul is doing in the first four chapters of the Corinthian letter. And I think we need to be there before we can really unpack chapter 4. We need to be on the same page that the, the resurrection is that kind of central, core concept that is, that is incredibly um, uh, important for our identity. Because you know, the resurrection is one of those things, it, it really forces our hand, doesn't it? One of the things that we love as Westerners is the ability to choose, and we like a plethora of choices. I really like to be able to customize things. I really, really enjoy having things just so, to my liking. The resurrection shows up, and when you deal with that kind of concrete reality, it really removes a lot of the options. Because it doesn't present the options as, well, you can either follow Jesus or you can follow your own will, or you can, you know, um, sell your soul to your children or to material happiness or to just generally comfort, or you can, you can really think that the most important thing is, say, wisdom, looking, looking really good in front of the world. The resurrection really doesn't give us so many options. It's you follow Jesus or you don't. It's rather black and white. Either you swear an allegiance to him or you are an enemy of his. There's no blurriness in there. And that's what Paul is most frustrated with. If you read through these four chapters, these early chapters of the Corinthian letter, he's really frustrated that the Corinthians are trying to, in many ways, have their cake and eat it too. They are trying to get the benefits of following Jesus without giving up what is necessary. They're trying to have all the perks and none of the sacrifice. They are not, they are not willing to pay the full price. The, the whole cost of following Jesus is just a little too high. Maybe we, can, maybe we can bargain and we can keep a little bit of what we prefer. Paul says, ah, you see, even when I hear you guys talk about the difference between me and Apollos and Peter, it's just... It's very clear that there's something messed up in you. There's some lingering worldliness, as Jim put it last week. There's a real need to grow up. This first section in chapter 4, he reminds them, hey guys, it's the Lord who judges me. And implicit in that statement is the idea that, um, that there is a judgment to be rendered, but there's also an appropriate way to do so. And you don't get to do it. And I don't even think you understand the criteria, he'll say. He opens up in verse 1. Uh, we're, we're pulling out of chapter 3 where he's already introduced these concepts of both servants and this final judgment. And he pulls that back in through all the way through chapter 4. He says, this is how one should regard us, talking about him and Apollos, as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. So servants, that's pretty self-explanatory. That's someone who works for someone else, who is, who is underneath someone, and really in the biblical sense, it's more of property that is owned. And Paul, he's like, like, I'm not my own, I'm someone else's. I work for someone else. And in that sense, he's, he's kind of leveling the playing field. Like, to, to follow Jesus is an act of service. It is, a, it is an endeavor in serving but then he'll add like a special title for himself and he'll say um, that we are also stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God, of course, being the gospel, the revelation of Jesus, 
That apocalyptic event when Jesus comes down and, and everybody starts to see the, the, the plan of God unfold. And then he goes to the cross. He's like, oh, that makes more sense. And then he resurrects from the dead. They're like, wow, we should have seen this coming. But all of that is now made manifest. And, and Paul says, and, and we're stewards of this mystery. A steward might just sound like another word for servant. But they're, 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 they're very much related. But they, there's, there's enough of a difference that it matters. The word for steward is oikonomos, and this is, this is a special servant. This is a servant that is the head of the household, that runs all that goes on in that house, that has been given this special trust from the owner to both report back and to, 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 to kind of give a, um, they're responsible to, to speak to the owner and to do everything on their behalf, but they're also in charge of the other servants. Paul says, we are both servants, like you we're also stewards of the mysteries of God, which means that there's been this, this responsibility that's been given to him. It's a, a delegated authority. From the gospel, Paul is given this authority to then proclaim the gospel, and to do anything against that authority is to ignore the chain of command. And Paul says, look, I know you might want to judge us, but you don't sit over us. The truthfulness of the gospel does. Our Lord, our master does. He continues in verse 2. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, remember who Paul's talking to. He's talking to a church in Corinth. And if you imagine what they would have thought would be required of stewards or, say, ministry leaders or apostles or pastors or whatever, what would a Corinthian church expect? They might expect that you would be wise. They might expect that you would be eloquent, that you would use many words, that you would be winsome, that you would have the ability, the big personality to attract a large following, that you could be persuasive. Um, last year, I, after I was done preaching one Sunday, um, a gentleman came up, and, and I understand what he was trying to say. He was very well-intentioned and kind, but he came up to me, and uh, after I had just preached from the book, like the Bible here, and he came up and he said, hey, man, great speech. And I thought, that's a strange way of putting it. And I said, thank you, appreciate that, and then went on. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, I wonder if he was distracted by the wrong thing. I wonder if when he says great speech, he means, I like the way you put it. I thought you sounded eloquent. I thought you sounded educated. That was a really clever way of saying it. And I wish that he would have looked like this, that he would have said, it's only required that they be found faithful. I, I'd much rather have him have said, hey, Ryan, no offense, but you're altogether expendable, but I, I appreciate your faithfulness to that text. I appreciate you bringing me to God's word and helping me see him more clearly. And the more I thought about it, the more I wonder if I was a distraction for him. If he was enamored with more of a Corinthian air about me than he was with a faithfulness to the text. Paul says, I don't even know if you guys would know what to judge. You're so interested in eloquence and in wisdom. Verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. You see, if you track through these four chapters, you realize that Paul is very frustrated with their, what they've done to the gospel. They have 
They have in some ways manipulated it. They've, they've developed their own new spirituality where they've really attained it. You'll see what he says here in the back half of chapter 4. He's got some real strong opinions about how well they think of themselves. And it's like, I want to call it like a, a cultural nearsightedness. It's like they took the gospel in Corinth and they said, oh, we can make this more Corinthian and then it'll be perfect. First of all, we need this to sound better. We need to use all the trappings of the Greek wisdom. We need to make sure that this looks, it's, it's just not decadent enough, Paul. Let's, your, your gospel's a little Spartan. Your lifestyle is not that attractive to us. Can we ramp this up a little bit and make it just look more attractive and more winsome? It's a cultural nearsightedness. They took the gospel and they shoved it through the Corinthian filter and out came this pseudo-gospel. And it scares me to death that you and I do this all the time. This chapter is going to say some hard things about comfort as it relates to the gospel. He'll talk about it in terms of material wealth and safety and security and health. And he doesn't talk about it in a very kind way. And so this is a hard chapter for me to read as an American. But I wonder if I'm in some sense trapped by my context. If I'm forcing eternal truths through an American filter and out comes some pseudo gospel where I really don't have to sacrifice as much as he asked me to. Come on. That's ridiculous. Paul says, if you think like that, you have no business judging me. He says, neither does any human court. Before we think he thinks too much of himself, though, he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Paul says, look, guys, I'm your servant. I am here as a steward for your benefit. I am here for you, but I'm not, I don't answer to you. And before you think that that's kind of like a selfish thing, I, neither do I answer to my own conscience. You see, Paul has a long view of history. It's like the resurrection shaped the way he thinks. He believes, okay, so Jesus resurrected from the dead and thereby defeated death and thereby won for us a future resurrection from the dead. And on that day, everything will be set right. All that is good will endure and all that is good from last week will be burned up. Paul believes this. And he says... I don't even get to judge myself. I don't even get to render a verdict on my life. He continues, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So let's pull this, right? This is, this is an apostle in a very special position, right? Speaking to a church 2,000 years ago. But let's pull this into the 21st century. Have you ever had a thought, good or bad, about one of Jim's messages? Have you ever wondered how well the ministry staff at Sunnybrook is doing? Have you ever questioned the leadership of the elders? Have you ever said, huh, I don't know if he should be a one to lead a life group, if you know what I mean. I know how busy she is. I wonder if she can even prepare for her Sunday school class as much as she claims to. Hmm. 
Did you go back in the nursery today? That's how Beth is running the nursery? I can't believe they would let him on a fit team. Man, have you seen him? He's a really good dude. You should see how he parents his kids and how he loves his wife. He just leads them so well. Him, not so much. Guys, I know that you're real impressed with her on Sundays, but you should see how she acts at work in the week. Now, what I don't think that Paul is teaching is that no judgment whatsoever is necessary. And that doesn't even align with Paul's ministry. I do think he's telling us to pump the brakes a bit. And I do think that he's pointing to a new criteria. I think it's faithfulness. I think Paul is asking us to understand that faithfulness is the standard, not eloquence. Not the ability to give more than somebody else. Not, not any of these things. It's, it's faithfulness, wherever you're called. I mean, I know that this isn't possible, but think about all the places that you and I do ministry, from Jim preaching up here all the way down into the, when you tuck your kids into bed. There's ministry context all over the place, and Paul says the standard is faithfulness. Can you imagine if a room this big would get on board with the idea that the standard is faithfulness, what we could do? If faithfulness is the standard, then maybe success is the natural result. Isn't that my worldly way slipping back in? Because Paul continues, and he says, if faithfulness is the standard, I'll tell you what it results in. Something very un-Corinthian. That flagship line in that next section is that we are fools for Christ's sake. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you towards faithfulness, and it will produce a foolishness in you. Are you okay with that? I don't know if I like that one. He says in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Why? So that you may learn. So that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So Paul says, hey, guys, I've been using Apollos and myself as an example, which is a big, big theme in chapter 4. It's a big theme in all of 1 Corinthians, but he's going to hammer it here. I've used us as an example so that you could learn not to go beyond what is written. Now, what does he mean by what is written? Lots of arguments there. It could mean anything from Scripture to something that Paul has written in a previous letter to various Scriptures, very specific Scriptures that Paul has already spoken of to them or that he knows is being taught in that church. Or it could even extend out to maybe a common proverb that they would have understood. But like Justin pointed out, we've got to remember this is a real letter from a real person to real people. And as such, we have to at least admit that there's, there's a possibility that there's some insider language here that 2,000 years later we just can't grasp. If I had to land on an option, I would say with like 52% certainty that it's, it's likely he's quoting specific scriptures he knows that the Corinthian church has been taught. But the point remains the same. He says, you guys know what needs to be done. You know that you should not go beyond certain points. And I want you to learn that so that you don't become puffed up picking between Paul and Apollos and Peter. Um, I know that it, it seems as if everyone's got a favorite minister, but the, the 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4 really seems as if it's not so much, ah, we prefer Paul or we prefer Apollos. It's, it seems like it's very anti-Paul. He's like, ah, you guys don't get to make that call. If you don't like sarcasm, this is your trigger warning because Paul's about to lay it on thick. He says, verse 7, 
For who sees anything different in you? That's a Pauline way of saying, who in the world do you think you are judging me like that? Who do you think you are? He says, have you guys become so high and mighty that you're judging apostles now, much less other servants of the Lord? Who do you think you are? And then he hits at the presumptuous nature of their, of their claims. What do you have that you did not receive? This is why our theology matters. The Corinthian church has forgotten just how deep grace is. That they could not have been included in the fold were it not for God's grace. That they've done nothing to earn what they, what they have in the Lord. It's like hearing a lottery winner talk about how hard they've worked to secure their fortune. It's just stupid. What do you have that you did not receive? That should at least set a certain tone in one's heart. You forget grace, it's almost impossible to live a life of gratitude. He says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You're so ungrateful. See, when you become puffed up like these Corinthians, it's amazing how forgetful you become how they owe their very existence and the very life they have in Christ to God's unmerited favor. Paul says, you guys are forgetting the point. Continues in verse 8, and the sarcasm gets thicker and thicker. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Paul says, hey guys, good news. I planted the church and when I left, you guys figured it out. You're all of a sudden perfectly sanctified. There's nowhere left to go. There's no more left to grow. You guys are just, you're kings now. Look at you, you've done it without me. Implicit in that is, you're kidding yourselves. You're kidding yourselves. This isn't like an over-realized understanding of sanctification as if there's none left um, I, I, I love talking about the, the biblical concept of, of being content because it's complicated because there is a sense in which being content is wrong there is a sense in which being content will actually stunt you when you think you've made it when there's no more holiness to grow into when, there's, when you become so puffed up that you look down your Corinthian nose at others, like that is, a, that is a wicked, that is an unholy content. And in that, in that case, a, a holy discontent is really helpful. Not a, oh, woe is me, I can't believe I'm not growing, but a, a real hunger for Christ-likeness such that you'll engage with the community and with the Spirit of God and with the, the Word of God and, and, and grow in holiness. And Paul says, hey guys, good news, you've already made it. You're kings. It's ridiculous. He says, I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul says, look, it's not as if I don't wish it were true because that would mean that the end has come. Paul's got a long view of history. He knows that when God comes back, when Jesus returns, everything will be set right and he knows that on that day we will be kings. And Paul's like, I wish that were true, but you're so foolish. It's, it's so not true yet. Verse nine, for I think that God has exhibited us 
apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. A bit of a strange phrase there, but Paul is pulling on a, a common understanding of how, um, how the Roman Empire worked. When they, would, when they would defeat an army or conquer some sort of land, and there's kind of like this imperial inclusion, you would bring back the bounty. So the, the Roman armies would march, they would parade the, the goods back, and, and when they did, they would also, at the end of that parade, would be their new slaves. And at the very, very back of the parade, so at, we've, got, we've now got new slaves to work the kingdom here at Rome, and at the very back you have people of high reputation, people of high status in the land that you just conquered, and you're likely going to put them in the Colosseum or in some other similar arena and have them fight it out and basically delight in the blood sport of their death. And Paul says, that's us. That's us. Now, what he's, not, what he's saying is that, look, Corinthians, you're on the wrong side of all of this. You're on the wrong side of this because it's, it's almost like you think you're, you're kings and you are sitting there watching the new slaves come in. And then you mock us apostles as we come in for the slaughter. And Paul is saying, do you not get which side you ought to be on? Our Savior was murdered. The way of the cross is hard, and it defies conventional wisdom, and it goes against every earthly idea of what victory looks like. So there you are, looking down your Corinthian noses at us, who are dishonored in this world, much like our Savior was dishonored in this world. Do you not understand that you're on the wrong side of things? Become a spectacle to the world. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. He's going to drive the point home. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Now these first, you know, verses 8, 9, and 10, these are, th these are three verses where Paul is, is um, talking about the Corinthians in a way where, like, this is what they want him to be. They want him to, to have made it. They want him to be wealthy. They want him to be a king. They want him to be, um, to be wise in Christ. They want him to be strong. They want him to be honorable. And he says, that's just not me. That's not the way of the kingdom. It's foolishness. It's weakness. It's being held in disrepute. So, wait. Is weakness the goal? When you follow Jesus, is weakness the goal? Like, that's a hard thing to sell. And, and there are, there's a part of me that really wants to study hard and do some fancy interpretive footwork so that I can say, no, it's not the goal. That was a first century thing. This is like we can be strong in Christ. Let's, let's, let's link arms and do this. I just can't find it. Paul seems to say, in all this language that talks about his power, he's talking about his weakness. And there's just something there, and perhaps it testifies to how true it is because there's so much of my own culture that wants me to not believe it. But I can't get around it. Is weakness the goal? I think so. What does that look like for you? I don't know. We can figure that out. But I think it's the goal. 
Um, one of my favorite quotes on this, I've heard it a lot recently, it says this, if dependence on Jesus is our goal, then weakness is an advantage for us. If dependence on Jesus is the goal, then our weakness is actually an advantage. That's just, don't know how we communicate that here, but it seems to be the case for Paul. And it seems to be a universal truth that stretches through. Now Paul describes how he thinks they ought to be in verse 11. He says this, To the present hour, talking about he and Apollos, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. You know, Paul's point in this section is to the Corinthians, shouldn't it concern you that in your decadence you look nothing like our Savior? Shouldn't it bother you? Isaiah 53, 2, projected, foretold that Jesus would look something like this, that he would have no form or majesty, that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And Paul writes this scathing letter to the church in Corinth and says, you don't look like that at all. Um... If I were to pull this into the 21st century, my concern is this. Like many of Paul's passages, we are quick to identify with him. Quick to align ourselves with Paul. Maybe it's his rather logical way of presenting things. Whatever it is, we like to be on Paul's side. And we see ourselves very much in Paul's sandals. But were I really to evaluate myself, and I suspect the same would be true for many of you. In many areas of our lives, we look a lot more like the Corinthians than we'd like to admit. We do love the things of this world, and like them, I think that in many ways, we want to have it all. We want to follow Jesus, and we'd like a little bit of the world, too. I don't think that Paul is just chastising wealth. I don't think wealth is innately bad or evil. I don't know that I would consider myself, I wouldn't consider myself wealthy by American standards, but I would consider myself very comfortable. Rachel and I have all of our needs met and most of our wants. We're comfortable. And I, and I get a little worried when I think about what that comfort does to blind me to areas where I need to be more dependent on God. Why I don't have to worry about next meal or the health of my children. There are many things in my life that I, I accidentally end up a little more dependent on me. But I'm quick to let myself down. So it just doesn't even make sense. And Paul would say, that's nonsense. 
Paul has this cross-shaped theology that keeps him, even whenever he is hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, being punched in the face, when he has no home, when everyone considers scum and refuse. It's, it's not a pity party when he goes around telling people, yeah, you should, you should be like me. That's a hard message to hear. So, uh, if my comfort might actually be a stumbling block to me, if it's, if it's inhibiting some holiness in me, what do we do about it? Well, Paul is ever the, the practical theologian. He, I, for the life of me, I can't find a section where he goes off on this big theological idea and then doesn't land it with a practical application. He says very clearly in the following passage, be imitators of me. That's how you do this. Be imitators of me. Now, on the one hand, that sounds rather simple. And you might be getting frustrated at how simple I'm making it sound. I'm not intended to make it sound simple. In fact, I think it's very hard. I am over. I am just done trying to explain Christianity as if it's some easy thing. I'm done putting everything on the bottom shelf where it just seems like, ah, it's really easy to follow Jesus, right? It costs me just a little bit. Spare change in the couch type thing. I can, I can rustle that up and follow Jesus. I'm done with that. It is hard to follow him. As the New Testament constantly attests, it's very hard to follow him. The gospel is accessible to anyone with ears to hear, but it will cost you your soul to believe it. And that's just, that's a high price. And as a servant myself, who is, who is kind of like devoted to this gospel, and as a servant who's doing my best to be faithful to this text and to be faithful to God for your benefit, I'm done apologizing for what God has already asked you to do. He has asked you to live sacrificial lives. He has asked you to serve one another. He's asked you to give up your idols and follow him. And I'm not going to soften that at all. If it stings, probably because it should. But then Paul, here's why, here's why Paul brings like heavy-hitting theology, and then he softens it by switching the metaphor. He went from agricultural metaphors in chapter 3 to um, household metaphors in the early part of 4, and now he's going to put it back in the family context. He's going to call himself their father. And there is just, there's a, there's a bit of a, a scary... Um, there's a scary aspect to the father, but there's also like a, a comforting aspect to someone who knows what to do and knows what's best for me. Paul says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, my beloved children. When you're a father talking to your children and you do what I do, imitate me. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you have many who are talking to you about these things. You have leaders at the church. You do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul has reestablished his authority as the one who planted that church and the one who can speak tenderly to them with authority. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Okay, well, we don't have Paul. So who do we imitate? How do we know who to imitate? In John Calvin's commentary on this particular passage, I, this, was, this quote was very fascinating to me. He said this, But to what extent Paul wishes them to be imitators of him, he indicates elsewhere when he adds, As I am in Christ. Imitate me as I am in Christ. 
We must always hold to this imitation so that we don't follow any human teachers, except insofar as they lead us to Christ. We know what Paul intends here. The Corinthians were not only running away from the lowliness of the cross, but they were also despising their spiritual father because having forgotten earthly glory, he was instead boasting in the disgrace of Christ, detestable to the Corinthian church. In an honor and shame society, why would I willingly disgrace myself? And Paul seems proud of it. And this line right here, when Calvin said this, this this cut me. He says this, And the Corinthians considered themselves and others fortunate since they avoided the things that were contemptible according to worldly standards. I want to read that one more time. The Corinthians considered themselves and others fortunate since they avoided things that were contemptible according to worldly standards. And I wonder if we think like that sometimes. How many of you have ever thought, even if it was a fleeting thought, I am so glad Jay and Caitlin gave up their lives to go to Japan for the sake of the gospel, so that means I don't have to. I am thrilled to death that Matt is going to go do gospel work in Mexico because that sounds hard, and when he does it, I don't have to. I'm so glad Jake and Aaron went to to Africa because I really didn't want to do that. Do we ever revel in the fact that we have not paid the same price for the gospel that others have? Is that not sick? And does it not betray the lingering worldliness in us? I'm not saying everybody needs to go to Africa or Japan or Mexico. But have to do something. Paul says, look, I have expectations. Verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Why? To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Timothy's coming and he's got a task. He's going to remind them of this Paul that they're supposed to imitate. But I love how Timothy's described. He is both a beloved child of Paul's, which means he resembles Paul, But he's also, back to that word up at the beginning of chapter 4, faithful. There's that criteria again. Are we faithful? Because I'm sending a faithful one who looks like me to teach you how to look like me as I look like Christ. Continues in verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out Not the talk of these arrogant people, but the power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. When Paul comes back, will he find Corinthian wisdom? Will he find smooth talk? Or will he find the gospel manifesting itself in power? And he says this, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul says, look, as best as I'm able to forecast, I'm coming back. And either it will be to discipline those who have fallen short, or it will be to love and encourage those who have remained faithful. Either way, I'm coming as a father. And I think that this is not a mean-spirited text. This is a text of authority. I am coming as your father. And I will either discipline so that I could one day encourage, or if the discipline is unnecessary, I'll now encourage. I'll celebrate with you. 
there's this, this big emphasis here on imitation. And I think that that's important for us to recognize as we close here. It is not, uh, so you guys are familiar with the phrase, do as, I, uh, do as I say, not as I do. Do the things that I say, but don't look at how I do. Just, just trust me, do as I say. That's just a non-Christian concept. Do as I say, Paul says, and if you want to see what that looks like, watch what I do. Paul does not have a lifestyle detached from doctrine. His practice is connected to what he believes. Do as I say, because I do it, and you can see how. So as we think of imitating, we don't have Paul. We do have his writings, so that's helpful. But who do you imitate? And do they lead you closer to the cross, or do they lead you closer to the culture? Closer to the cross or closer to the world? A good litmus test is the Sermon on the Mount. When you imitate whoever it is that you respect in the faith, does it lead you closer to the point where you can, okay, we don't murder, that's baseline morality, but I don't want to be angry. I won't hate my brother. Does it lead you closer to truthfulness, to let your yes be yes and your no be no? Does it lead you more in a generous direction? Does it, um, does it help you forgive? When you imitate whoever, are you more forgiving? Are you more sacrificial? The scarier question, though, is do the people that imitate me look more like the Sermon on the Mount over time? Or do they look more American or Corinthian? It's like it's actually true. We'll end here. That big, big verse in chapter 1 that the word of the cross is truly folly to those who are perishing. But for us, to those people in this room, for us who are being saved... It is the power of God. So like Paul, we'll continue to boast in the cross. And like Paul, we'll imitate those who teach us to do so all the more. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the time that we can spend together unpacking your scriptures. Grateful that we have the scriptures at all. Without them, I don't know that we could understand what it means to be foolish for your sake. But I pray that you would impress that on our hearts as we dig into your word we spend time in community and as we pray in the spirit. Father, we're grateful for you. Lead us in these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.